Hey everyone, thank you for joining me on the BIPOC Outside podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell and today we're sitting down with Jose Gonzalez. Jose is a professional educator, conservationist, artist, community builder, the co-founder of the Outdoorist Ode, and the founder of Latino Outdoors. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, of course, as you know, this show doesn't happen without our title sponsor, the Outward Bound Canada Training Academy for Outdoor Professionals. With program locations across Canada that offer free programming to address skill gaps in the outdoor sector, the Trading Academy is building the next generation of outdoor leaders. With a commitment to meaningful Indigenous representation, and by prioritizing BIPOC and 2S LGBTQ inclusion, the Academy is reimagining what the outdoor industry looks like. Check out their website to sign up for free fall sessions, visit obctrainingacademy.ca, or find their partner link on our website. We also need to shout out our presenting sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large-format magazine celebrating mountain culture, featuring beautiful long-form storytelling from real people who love the outdoors. These are stories you will sit with and savor. Each issue also contains stunning photography. These are magazines that you'll keep and come back to. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Check them out at mountaingazette.com or find their partner link on our website. Jose, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you. I am well and grateful for today. Awesome. So let us jump right into it. You're originally from Mexico, grew up in California. Is that correct? Yes. So I was born in Mexico all my early years, right up to about the age of nine, where in a relatively rural town in, in Mexico, in the state of Nayarit, and then migrated to the United States and specifically in California and did the rest of my growing up in the Central Valley. So what was your introduction to the outdoors? I think it usually it's both a, a simple and nuanced in terms of the introduction to the outdoors, because in, in, in Mexico, the, the outdoors was just outside. It was this notion of it wasn't hiking. It was just walking from point A to point B type of thing. But it, why I say when it's nuanced, it's because I think the kind of idea or even just the social construct of the outdoors was a lot more apparent to me in the U.S. when I kind of had to travel to the outdoors or like a recreational type of experience. When we did a school trip to state parks, for example, and kind of got that sense of how this space was intended to be very different than even just your city park or maybe even your own backyard. And in many ways, they're not, of course, but but in terms of, quote unquote, policies and managements, you know, those those lines, those lines on a map have consequences. Absolutely. What's your favorite way to get outdoors these days? I've been really trying to support and be a proponent of you know, the idea of the outdoors experience as a spectrum rather than some pyramid in which like peak outdoor experiences are at the top. And that's what we want to tell people is like, oh, you have to go on a 10 day backpacking experience. It can be amazing. Yes. It can be transformative. Definitely. And I don't want to diminish the impact and the value of nearby nature. And so I say this because sometimes my outdoors is just a quick morning jog, making a stop at the park to kind of watch the crows and the squirrel. Other times it might be a trail run where I can just get on that trail and really experience that differently. So I try to move at different paces and, of course, appreciate all of the type of peak athleticism that many bring in there. And I also support people for them like, hey, I spent a mile the whole day and just kind of appreciating it, everything in between. I love that. I think that my bike commutes to and from campus 
are more meaningful to my mental health than a ski day. Incredibly so. And that's part of what my morning jogs, I call the meditation runs because they, you know, one, one approach and practice of meditation is that you're giving kind of your active self, whether it's your physical body or the light, something to do <laughs> so that the other part of you can focus or do that work. And so in that regard, my meditation run is like to give my active self something to do as then I kind of really entered a more meditative state at a being and ground for the day. So your educational training is in environmental science and education. And there seems to be like a false understanding that racialized communities aren't concerned about the environment. How do you confront that? It's a very good question because it just, it hits right on the point of pick two, three decades ago, couldn't quote unquote, readily point to the data in terms of impacted communities, communities of color, disenfranchised communities, like you name it, those that consistently and deliberately were kind of left out of that decision-making. It was easy to say, well, they're just not interested. They're not here because they don't care. And especially since, you know, kind of 2008, 2012 and beyond, we now have so many much more surveys and polls and data that basically say it's really kind of the white dominant community that it shows up the least in terms of care, concern, willingness to, to, to tax, like you name it. And so I say this because if we can point to that now and say, actually, this is how community of colors consistently show up with care, concern, and willingness to, to do all these things, and yet they're not represented in the power structure and decision-making, then we can ask that question. So the question is flipped in terms of why don't they care, but rather systemically or structurally, what is in place that has kept them from having that care and concern be represented in the decision-making that has impacted them in the first place. It's true though, that the care and concern for some racialized communities about the environment is shaped somewhat different mm -hmm. than the white communities. So talk to me a little bit about that. Definitely, you know, when we approach this work, it, for me, it, it always comes with like the nuance or the asterisk to say it's a reminder that, you know, beware of a generalization of how it might be a monolithic, be, be aware of like having a monolithic perspective on it. And so the both and, right, is we're able to see, if they're trying to define that, they need that. It's not gonna, we're not gonna finish that today. It's about being able to say, we're not saying that this defines it all. And yet there can become markers that can invite us to look in deeper and be able to say, so what does this look like? How is this affected by the locality, by the positionality, by the region, right? by the different intersection of these elements? And so I say this because, you know, you can go from everything from the reality of that here in the US, we're on stolen land, that that's a reality of how the whole diversity and spectrum of, of indigeneity and of native and tribal communities in the U.S. was impacted straight up in that way. And what did it mean to have that physical and cultural genocide? And same thing in terms of like for the Black African-American community, it is a whole wide diversity of, of what that can mean. And it's still the root of what Chateau slavery meant in the United States as that example. Uh, and then you throw in all of the other respective communities. So you're able to see, we can have a relationship to land. We can have a relationship to nature. We can have a relationship to what the outdoors means in that context, but they're shaped an influence for that. So that how and how we show up into the spaces, what we value about them, what's our heritage is in relation to them, will show up in those different ways. Everything for why some people might be afraid of the forest. We say we're afraid of the woods. Uh, and yeah, it might be the bear, but really it's also because of the history that's been passed down about hurt and trauma and violence in those woods or labor 
and how like well, the outdoors has always meant labor for me. It's never meant leisure and love. Down to I often say even even now you can look at how there can be a dominant frame of seeing the outdoors as this place of refuge, so individual solitary refuge. This is where I go to actually get away from people. That can have value, definitely. And then don't be surprised if some communities, they, you know, a Latino community wants to show up in an intergenerational way with the whole family. And that, I love this example of a colleague was saying that kind of the National Park Service was doing a focus group down in Tucson and they were just showing different images. And there was one of that solitary, you know, kind of old Sierra Club type of image of being out there on your own. And the Latino family was asking, like, are they okay? You know, they're, they're just all out there by, by themselves. Where's their family? And so those little reminders to be able to say how we can be inclusive, inclusive of a breadth of experiences in this way. That's such a great example. I might, I might borrow that. Over this season, we've been talking about environmental and climate advocacy and how access to is, isn't equal and how it's not available to some people who are disenfranchised in terms of voting, you know, in terms of making political choices to support the environment. So how, how can people who are disenfranchised abdicate safely or for outdoor environmental issues that matter to them? This can be really, it can be really tough because I think one of the key things it recognizes is trying to be active in structures and systems that, that have hurt you for so long. And so I say this because there, there is a reality to having power by showing up and voting and making sure you're represented in that structure. And why you still can have pushback and say like, well, why are you voting? That doesn't change anything. All you're doing is becoming complicit in the system. And so it's like holding, holding that space to me is part of the challenge because it isn't, for me, it isn't meant to be binary. It's either one or the other. It's what does it mean to have both? And then what comes up? Because through that, ideally, for me, we have to have healing. Otherwise, we end up in, in, in more cycles of harm. And so we can see this if you get someone elected that you think it's always going to stand up for you and they don't live up to your expectations or that we don't end up engaging at all. And then we end up with even more repressive policies and laws that make it even harder to get engaged. And so that's where I think we, we are in many ways for, for different things. So I'm framing all of this because, you know, how can people get involved? It, it really does start with one, acknowledging that the systemic design is there for you to feel hopeless and not want to do something. So if you say, well, what can I do? That's exactly the type of response that, that the structure will, will want to, to receive. Because then, then for sure, nothing happened. Yeah. So one is being able to say, acknowledge that. And then two, but do something. And that doing something can be everything from telling a friend, a colleague, showing up to vote in any possible capacity or way, taking information that might not be accessible to others and letting them know. Um, it can be a full range of what's called like the roles of a social ecosystem, like the work of Deepa Ira that says you don't only have to show up protesting and marching on the street. That can be one way. We also have all of these other ways that we kind of need you to be able to show up and that for which you might feel much more called to. Thank you for that. That's that's really helpful. I really appreciate that insight. I'm switching gears a little bit. You are the founder of Latino Outdoors, which just had its 10 year anniversary. So congratulations. Just a, just a past month or so ago here. So what was the impetus? Tell me about, you know, the start of the organization and just the incredible ways that it's grown. Yes, I'm really excited because 
Again, this is the 10th year anniversary of Latino Outdoors. So 10 years ago, we didn't really have an idea or concept, right? This is what it would look like now. And yet it's aligned to that vision because it's still honoring some of those initial questions, which one of them was, are there others like me? And if so, like, how can I meet with you all? How can I hang out? How can I work? How, how can I be of service in this way? And I say this because, I mean, I knew there were others like me. It wasn't, we weren't particular types of unicorns, even though sometimes we would say that. It's knowing, again, relationally, structurally, what is that infrastructure that's there for to facilitate these connections? And so that's what led to the founding of Latino Outdoors. And with the idea that the goal wasn't to make an organization, it wasn't like, hey, well, let's just create a nonprofit. It was to really think about what does it mean to be in community, to support a community, and out of that, that cohort of leaders saying, we want to take families like ours outdoors. So that kind of became the program element. While also for me acknowledging is, can this be one of the pathways to continue to support us, support us as we advance in our careers? Because we wanted early on, I would say, I, I'm cautious about our communities only remaining as objects of programming that let's take the kids outdoors, they take the families outdoors, but who was taking them outdoors, why they were being taken outdoors, the funding decision, the programmatic decision around that isn't being reflected from that community. And so that really led to kind of, kind of the core of what Latino Outdoors does now, which is one, the outdoor experiences, kind of the vamos outdoors, two, supporting the, this professional development of the community, so crecemos outdoors, as well as the narrative element of what can this mean and look like, knowing that Latinidad is so varied, it's so complex, it has all of its own issues, and yet can be a point of connection for many. Um, what is that? What can that look like? So that's the yo cuento, right? How we approach that in that element, as well as some of the work that that being involved in policy as well to to support change at that structural level. Tell all of us who you know who aren't a part of the larger Latino community, culture of familia, culture of family. Tell yes. me about this. Early on, we would say this Latino outdoors, connecting right with the outdoors and leaning into the power of familia. And I say this because right the direct translation is culture and family. But we, at that point, we were using it in Spanish to acknowledge that there are words that when they're said in that language, they can impact slightly differently. And so the word cultura has shown up in many different ways as part of this work, whether you hear it as la cultura cura, the culture cures, as a way to really look at what aspects of culture can be really healing, that can be helpful and in service of our community. And threads of kind of like the Chicano movement as people were both really looking at what it meant to have civil rights for communities that were impacted in these particular ways, while also maybe reconnecting to their own respective indigeneity, to like really thinking about how those communities were present in everything from not just careers, but in academic institutions. So for example, the birth of Chicano studies at universities. So that's why for me, words like cultura really carry a lot. It wasn't just, we're here to like leverage the power of culture. Yes, but when we use the word cultura and familia, we know that they can resonate, they have a particular resonance with an audience when they hear that in that language. And acknowledging, this is where I say the beautiful mess of Latinidad, well, it acknowledges that it's still a colonizer language, it's Spanish. And so it, what can be really hard, it's for some people to, to only see it in an ex exclusive way. And I often say it's inclusive of, but not limited to, as a way to think about 
this is we're trying to bring as many people together rather than creating a space to say like, this is it and the rest is not for you. That's incredible. And language is is so important. That's been a running theme that I didn't expect this entire season. <laughs> the importance of language. Language has a lot of power in ways that sometimes some people don't think about or aren't supported in thinking about them because, again, they can come with power. Talk to me about the intersection of science and climate action with outdoorism and culture. The I was one is I, I really try to stay connected with the kind of science communication community psychon. And I say this because, you know, my graduate work was Masters of Science and really with my interest looking at how can we take all the challenges and realities of our environmental injustices and work and really climate change as a whole element and make sure that there is an element of that connection to any type of community because we need everything, everyone to care. Climate change impacts all and it does impact all of us inequitably according to what's structurally in place. And yet at the same time, climate change doesn't go like, oh, well, here's the, here's the state boundary. So I guess I'm just going to stop here. All right. It doesn't go and it's like, well, that's a white community suit. I'm not going to touch it. it it's going to hit us all. It does that in the context of structure, what's in place. So it still means some communities are, are hit first and hit worst, as we say in kind of climate justice work. But I'm saying this because the power of science is one, acknowledging the value of science from kind of the West, this kind of Western European traditional method that has given us a lot of useful data and information. And again, inclusive of, but not limited to that, we also need to be able to honor the way, what science and other ways of knowing has meant for other communities that may not always fit that model, but could complement it pretty well. So what does it mean to have traditional ecological knowledge? What does it mean to have native science as a component of this? What does it mean to have community science as part of participatory approach? And so that all has power because otherwise we keep science as this inaccessible tool, as this inaccessible resource that it's got to be necessary for us to you know, ch change the way that we live. And lastly, that it, my concern has been that we both need science and yet we have to account for the role of values the role of our emotions, right? The effective filter, because if it was just about quote unquote, the science, we would have tackled many of these things 30 years ago, how we feel about particular things and, and, and how our cognitive biases play a role into that comes into play because some things like climate change in policy work, sometimes it's called a wicked problem because it has all of the elements of what makes it really hard to change it. We're asking people to take you know, to take the hit now and the benefits are deferred. That contrary to how cognitively we try to engage about trying to say, well, I want the benefit now. It is asking us to be able to expand the circle of we to what does it mean to have trust across communities for which they might not, you may not have those. Right? So it's asking for, for the challenges of that small, quote unquote, tribal thinking. And I mean, tribal and, and kind of that, that older sense of the word, not in terms of native sovereignty. And all of these elements come into play. And if we don't do the work to weave that, then we can't be surprised at fragmentation. It's the starting point. And again, then that means systemically, we're not ready to tackle that at that level. Absolutely. And it, it's so funny that you say that, you know, if the Western science tradition was enough, we would have had solutions 30 years ago. And now we have this, not now, we've always had this, this wealth of knowledge and expertise in non-white communities mm -hmm. in North America. And yet, these are communities that are underrepresented in, in conservation and environmental studies and environmental education. 
Definitely. And I think it's, and I say this because it's, again, you know, as an example, I mentioned science in terms of the Western European kind of framework of thinking, because that can be reductive in what the value is in relationship to each other in the land. And what I mean by that is, let's take a forest. We look at that forest and kind of the old way of valuing that forest is as a natural resource, as let's protect the wood. Let's put out any fires because we need to maximize the trees that we can have for utility, for lumber. Uh, yes, people were looking at, you know, what's the ecological value of it, but that wasn't why we were preserving natural forests. And so that reductive mechanistic way of engaging with the world means that you take this tree, do its breath, breast measurement height, right? And, and then I can do all the categories, right? categorizing and classification accordingly. And so knowing that, can it give us useful data and information? Definitely. And what does it mean when, let's say, you have a native scientist saying, well, what happens when you look at this natural resource as a natural relative, such that it can still have utility? You can still, of course, use it for the wood. And having it as part of our non-human kin relations comes with a different responsibility than just treating it as an object. And but that treating it with that responsibility, of course, is a direct challenge to structurally what was in place that could justify those extractive purposes. And so that's where I was like, that shift is important because in terms of systemic change is one of those elements that, that is core to it. We have the structural elements, the relational elements, and then the mental models. And we need all of these to be in play because if we only tackle it from one approach, they were not using the other levers, levers accordingly. You, you touched on the, the construct of the outdoors being over there. So mm -hmm. how are we engaging, you know, urban communities, urban youth, mm -hmm. when it comes to climate advocacy, when it comes to yeah. just be, being able to engage in the outdoors? I think for that one, at least twofold. One of them is... I kind of mentioned again, that spectrum of like nearby nature to faraway wilderness. And that spectrum is important so that we can be in relationship to that connection, especially for times when we can't be in some of these places. So take the Arctic refuge. We can't say, well, everybody should go there to like understand its power and majesty and value because that's can be detrimental to that place. And yet we want people to be, to have care and concern. And so that's why I mean that I, I am cautious about the narrative that sometimes we might offer. So what does it mean to be connected so that I can value it and be, and be okay with not visiting it? And there are other places for which they, you know, may be able to handle more impact in terms of our visits that we want people to, to visit and be like, this is a reminder of why this is important. And so there's that element. As well as, you know, I talk about nearby nature, some of the work, some of our abilities and capacities and skills are within us and they're not always supported. So what I mean by that is we go out into a space, we can connect to all in many different ways. We know we have the power of observation and yet those, you have to nurture them so that people know how to appreciate something immediately outside of your door. Because otherwise it's just, it's just an urban landscape. We're like, ah, that's just an empty lot rather than like, let's go on a micro adventure and see that. Let's really step down and, and look down. And have you ever looked at lichen with a magnifying glass and see just a whole different perspective, right? Have you ever really, we would say, put your hand on Don Ancin on Mother Earth and like, just pause for a minute and see how does that feel different? Put your hands to the dirt. And now let's look at what's in there. Have you ever looked at crows and kind of see, follow their whole telenovela lives as like they're 
right? They're amazing beings, <laughs> but if they're just that, it's just another urban bird. I was like, it's quite the opposite. And so those elements to me is about how do we engage our communities with this aspect? How do we, here's three questions. We say, what do we notice? What do we wonder about? Right? What does it remind you of? Because those can be simple questions that can connect to scientific inquiry. Like that is what the whole process is about. Like, how can you really expand your power of observation in ways that you hadn't considered? In your bio, you identify as a green Chicano. What does that mean to you? So when I went to undergrad at UC Davis, I was involved in a couple of kind of student groups and clubs. And two of them were, one is Mecha, uh, Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano, Chicano de Aslan. And then the other one was CalPER, which is the California Public Interest Research Group. And so Mecha has its own history. And I was fortunate that I, I was with the chapter that, that really was, to me, signified what Mecha can be. How can we be in service of community? How can we support our, our wayfinding, how can we show up as we say, like, and Cal Pergams got interested because a lot of their work was around environmental work. And so, and yet I didn't see kind of these spaces connect with each other as much as I thought would be obvious or intuitive. So in our Mecha work, we were doing, of course, a lot of work around education, health, immigration, you name it. Now, I often ask like, well, how like environmental justice is a thing. So, so what environmental things are we doing here? And with Calperg, I was like, all right, I see I'm, I'm excited to be involved in all of this environmental work, but how, how are we like, how is it connecting to like communities reflected of me? Like, how is it environmental justice? And so I would often bring these conversations into those spaces. And so that's where my fellow machistas on the last year kind of, we were doing our closing ceremony of the year as we were all graduating. And they're like, we're going to give you the, the moniker of green Chicano. Green in terms of like, you're always talking about all this environmental stuff. And Chicano, of course, just honoring the Chicanismo in terms of what, what's part of that cultural work in terms of Mecha. So that's kind of where the name came in and it stuck. And I kept it because it was a good signifier to me of how I wanted to do part of this weaving work and how I wanted to not just be bicultural in the sense of like when people say like, oh, now you're coming to the U.S. and you're bicultural. I was like, what does it mean to be ambicultural in the way that just like you're ambidextrous, both aspects of these cultural, these cultural elements of your leverage and not just in terms of ethnic, racial, cultural identities, but even in some of this work that we do, that there are cultures around some of the work that we do, but what does it mean to continue to weave these? You are also a leader. You're an illustrator. So how does your work in the community and your work in the outdoors inform your art practice? I want it to, my intention, or I should say this, was to, what do you call it, to major in art. It didn't, interestingly enough, I should say, it ended up not working out because I had a bad experience in a couple of art classes. And I say interesting because it's almost like the, the colonial way of approaching art was so pervasive that I realized like, I don't want to do this anymore. So I switched over to history. But art to me still called to me in so many different ways, both in terms of just as a practice where I, I like to doodle, I like to draw and illustrate. I just became a, an interest and skill that, that really called to me. And then through history, being really connected to like the Chicano movement and kind of that whole aesthetic and how posters were used as a way to communicate. It wasn't just this create something as an art piece. It was like, let's have this be part of the work of our community work. And so all of these kind of work together so that I was like, I still want to do art. 
And so that informed how I approach art so that it can have that cultural element that someone could look at it and be like, oh, that looks interesting. I like that. Oh, that looks like the Dia de los Muertos kind of thing. Or that looks like, you know, it looks like this quote unquote Aztec god, god or goddess. So that's the initial hook. And that actually as part of that, there's a story. There is a narrative around that for which, you know, we could have a conversation. And so it might be that that looks like a Dia de los Muertos piece. But then if we look at it, it's actually farm workers in the field. And so it isn't just that the other was what this hook is now a connection to talk about pesticide impacts in, in terms of that element, as well as how pure they are. They're the laborers for a food source. And I can say, well, that isn't just a quote unquote Aztec God. We would say it's a deity because God and goddesses appear differently. And this one happens to be the one for water. But if you look at it, it's actually part of this cycle. And, if, and here is the hydrological cycle. But it's a way to talk about the water cycle in the connection between human and non-human kin and endemic species, little asolotl is kind of in there. And so that's, for me, art, how I wanted to approach it in, in many different ways as a way to still be in service of the work, do the storytelling, conceptually talk about some of the things that we do in conversation. So that's, that's a bit of how it wraps up. There's been a lot of conversations in, in sort of the recent past about mm -hmm. representation and what that means. And it's not just, you know, putting racialized individuals into marketing images. It's having like the content creators, the photographers, the illustrators in order to create images that are meaningful to communities that speak to communities in different ways. And I, I love your, you know, your artistic approach because it's, that's what it does. It definitely, it's we, you know, and this is what I often say, even just with, with the Latine type approach and aspect. I would see an ex even on Instagram, I would see this explosion of like amazing talented creatives making stickers, creating keychains, like all of this thing. And then I realized the outdoors isn't, I don't see it reflected in there. Where's my little hiking calavera? And so I would draw a little hiking calavera and then people was like, oh my God, that's, 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 that's us. I'm like, yes, that, that's part of, for me, how I want to contribute because you get, there's an excitement and curiosity that could come about seeing yourself reflected in there. But then you can be realized, well, it's, wow, it is quite a contrast then to then not see it. Talking about representation and DEI initiatives, after the protest cycles of 2020, Black Lives Matter, Every Child Matters, it seemed like everyone from gear companies to operators to resorts, everyone made a big show of a commitment to inclusion. And here we are in 2023. And with a few notable exceptions, that has mostly gone silent. What are your thoughts on that? I agree. The And this is where I referenced earlier about systemic change, that you have the structural elements, relational, and then the mental models, because the, the structural elements are the most explicit. You either see them or you don't. They're relational or semi-explicit. You know they're there, but you have to really unpack it a little bit more. And then the mental models are the hardest because we're asking people to engage in a mind shift. We're asking you to really actually change the way that something is defined and how it can be different. And that can be hard because... We, we really, we hold on tight to our, to our cognitive maps, to our mental models. And so it can be easy, so, so to speak, to make a show and that and come across as straight up performative as if like, here's my black square, right? Like with me showing that I'm a part of it and then be able to be, all right, so what does that square actually mean? How does it structurally change a policy or a resource? How much money is going for something, whether 
your retention policies are actually different. What does that mean relationally in terms of like there's actually a change in power dynamics or power structure that you can now point to say, because of this, now our board looks different in this way, or who is in charge of, of production of these campaigns is actually different. To mental model, which is being able to say how, you know, this was a great example of when people would get into the debates about Black Lives Matter and someone would counter, well, white lives matter too. And then like, this is a good example of you're so close to getting it, but not because you're, you see that and your reaction is to see black lives matter only, and you can't seem to see black lives matter too. And so that element of the mental model that it's like takes work because unfortunately the way that again, our cognitive biases work, unfortunately, just telling someone you're wrong doesn't immediately change their mind. It has to be part of an actual mind shift so that they can be able to go. It's like, I never thought about it that way. That makes sense. And I could still be, you know, my whatever fragility, my male fragility, my white fragility, you name it, was triggered, but it was in service of an act of growth oriented discomfort versus now this trigger means I'm out. And, and I'm like, I, that doesn't, that doesn't help me because you still get to be out with that privilege and the rest of us still get to need to continue this work with that. So I'm saying this because I'm not surprised in that if that, a lot of that work wasn't done, then for many, it was easy to opt out. For many, it was easy to, as we often say, just close the laptop and all of a sudden it goes away. And many also weren't resourced in terms of engagement to be able to do that long-term chain. And so we, we ended up with a reactionary moment or a responsive moment even at, at best, but not a systemically changing moment. In the past, I've, I've quoted one of your, your lectures, your invited talks in my academic work surrounding national parks. It, it was an invited talk that you gave, I think, in Telluride. And you talked about this a little bit at the top. Park services in, in both of our countries, especially since 2020, have been making a lot of effort in sort of DEI work to change their visitors, to change the composition of their visitors, to attract mm -hmm. more and more racialized communities, indigenous communities, black, Latino communities, but have really failed to address the problematic origins of those parks, which are in the living memory of, of me, of you, mm -hmm. a lot of people. It wasn't that long ago. So talk to me about that. Talk to me about like the mm -hmm. living memory impact to the Latino Latinx community. Yeah parks and natural spaces and policies. Yes, the, you know, here's a, a good example of, I often say the the necessary and hard work comes in holding at times seemingly contradictory or conflicting views, because that's the work we need to do. Sometimes the binary is the easy way out. You're only focusing on the quote unquote stuff. You're only quote unquote focusing on the bad stuff. And I'm like, that we can do that. I just don't want to be surprised about the consequences of those choices. And so, so I say this because one, it's we can't ignore the historic realities of these are all stolen native lands. And even when we say that, it's acknowledging that what that relationship to land is very different than what our relationship is now. So for example, in terms of private property. And so it's a way to acknowledge that we created national parks as a way to, to protect these landscapes from ourselves. That's so contrary to what like a, a native worldview may be, which is like, if you're just in responsible relationship with it, we probably wouldn't need to do this in the first place. And, and so I say this because I talk about what we've inherited is 
yes, things that we can say, as people say, these are America's best ideas in terms of like protecting these landscapes. And I often said, and you can't anchor that on incomplete or false narrative that these were all open spaces. And so knowing that it's all native stolen land and even through the Spanish colonial influences where you had all these large Mercedes and land grants, uh, the cycle repeated when the, you know, after the U.S.-Mexican war, the U.S. said, don't worry, yes, if you're already here, you're going to be fine. Now, this it just basically just how we're putting, you know, native communities from this area in reservations. Now for you and a quote unquote Mexican communities, we're also just going to like take your land as well. And so, you know, that's where for some communities in places like New Mexico and Colorado, their memory is like that national forest was an ejido. Some of it could have been private, but a lot of it could also have communal use. And so that, to me, I see that as a connection, obviously, to our indigeneity while acknowledging that are still our colonial history. But then I'm like, that's what I think that is. That for many, that can be very unfortunate. I said, welcome to being colonizer and colonized. If you're ready, let's, let's have that discussion. If you're not ready, then I can understand how maybe you're looking for that binary way out. One of the reasons I was so thrilled that I could to get you on to close out this season. It was important for me to have you on because I wanted to talk about your collaborative ethic. It's something that we share. It's something that we work together towards here. You know, BIPOC as a collaboration of communities, not as a mm -hmm. homogenizing concept. Yes. And you have done so much work with others in the space from Colorado Blackpackers, Natives Outdoors, too many to list. And we hear about how you speak others' names with such intentionality in spaces where it matters. So why is that important to you? Mm. Why is that part of your governing ethic? Thank you for that question, because we often try to frame us in a community over competition or what is the collective liberation? And yet the practice of it is can be very challenging and difficult. <laughs> because I'm a proponent of network leadership principles, which is one is mission over organization, trust over control, humility over brand, build constellations that stars. And so I say this because one of the researchers behind it, I love how she loves to say these are common sense. You hear them as like, yeah, of course, we should lean in with more trust rather than more control. They're common sense, but they're not commonplace. And so part of what not makes them commonplace is because a lot of the cultural aspects of it, and by culture, I mean kind of like, well, that's, you know, it's, it's accepted, not accepted, reinforce the opposite. And so you might say, yeah, yeah, of course, you know, trust over control. And then you get that grant uh, and they begin to realize like, well, no, we have to make sure that these mechanisms, accountability mechanisms are in place so that the money isn't misspent. And while do they really have a good history of being able to handle this type of grant, little by little, you begin to notice how really the control elements begin to dominate the relationship. And you then have somebody be like, I, it's really hard to work with. <laughs> like, I actually, we don't want your money. Or now I have to take your money, but be less authentic with you. But I, I want to take the money because I'm, I'm going to use it for service to community. And then humility over brand. And then as an example, then you begin to say, well, now the, the funder is saying, we, you know, we have to clearly say this is what's from. We got to have our name everywhere to let people know that it was us. And so that's where, for me, it's important because what the research behind network leadership principles show is that we can accomplish a lot 
So for example, under-resourced nonprofits can be really strong together. And it's a way that I connect it to the work that we often say, we, we know the value and strength of diversity. That's just as a given. And we see this in the, in the ecological sense, the strength of value of diversity. And so when it comes now to our social cultural spaces, to our people spaces, I'm concerned and cautious about we, how we practice the opposite. <laughs> And then we're like, well, now we're like, it's like saying, look at this beautiful monoculture of a forest. You know that that's not a healthy forest. You know that that's not good conditions for the thrivability of that. And so it's powerful for me because uh, I, I'll give an anchor in an example. When we used to do outdoor education work, we're like, listen, at the end of the day, we're out here responsible for these students, for the, the safety and well-being and educational outcomes of these students. Um, we can do a lot of harm if we don't really honor this responsibility. And we want you all to do your best. It's, so I said, so think of this difference. You show up there as an instructor, you know, doing your best to look good, thrive, be amazing. I want you to do that. Uh, I said, what changes if now really your focus is to make your colleague look great, to look good, and they are working to make you look good? What happens now? Because the outcome is still you both look good, but the way in which you're approaching it, you're building a different kind of relationship it's as opposed to you just focusing on yourself looking good because we're creating that network so that when I'm out, knock on wood, nothing has to fall down and also shouldn't be dependent. On, on me, for example, as an individual. And that's what with Latino Outdoors, I think that's the strength, an example of the strength of that community, that it shouldn't, it shouldn't have been dependent on me be, being there 30 years to have it be successful. We really want to, to try and aspire to do our best to create the thrivability that we know is a community of interdependence, of, of service, and, and, and how we model, right, the, the healthiness of an ecosystem. Thank you. So what's next for you? What projects do you have coming up? Any adventures planned? Anything you want to tell us about? Yes. So, I mean, I continue to support the outdoors in the founder role and support our executive director, support our boards, support just the amazingness of the community. I get to, when on Instagram, we'll go on and be like, wow, this is what a team in, in Boston is doing, what a team in San Antonio is doing, what the team in Seattle is doing. It's just, it's beautiful because I'm seeing what I wanted what I was looking for 10 years ago. It felt like, yay. So I continue to support that and be of service to both all the teams as well as the national team as possible. The other one is to continue to support the work as a co-founder for the Outdoors Oath and be able to model and shape what that can look like as a community, as a platform, as a framework to help individuals to align that individual action to systemic change. So that continues to be exciting. And then the last two is do more creative work in terms of writing and more art. I'm really looking forward to do that because there's a lot of ideas that I kind of want to put down on paper and, and have them be shaped in that way, expanding on the work of healing severed connections, which is kind of part of some of that, that narrative work that I've done. And then in terms of kind of adventures is to continue to get outdoors. I really, I admire so much a colleague, Teresa Baker, who always really, this is when we talk about structural elements. You make sure it's on your schedule and you go out and do it. You go out there and you're out there every day because I think it's a, it's a really powerful reminder. And I was asking myself earlier this week, it's like, what sunsets have I, you know, what sunsets were opportunities that I just didn't go outside? And so I'm looking forward more to that as well as getting to connect with, with more of the Latino Doors teams, getting to connect and build more of that community, and then getting to evaluate next year kind of like what this work can look like. Amazing. How do our listeners find you? How do they follow you? Mm. The, so in terms of social media, I think 
relatively easy handle is at Jose Bilingue and primarily I tend to be on Instagram and Twitter. I do frequent some of the other social media sites, but I was like, I have to be attentive how much time I can be on there. Having said that though, I'm present on my website, of course, is available in terms of people can, can reach out, but ideally, you know, I try to put out there. I often say in service of myself. So, but really hopefully can have some value. And I say this because it could be everything from memes that people seem to really like to some of the writings, right? They can have quite a bit of value to some of the speaking engagements, which have been recorded and I think are available in that way and just showing up at some of the local spaces. So those are some of the different ways that, that I can be found. And I'm just really grateful for everyone. Amazing. Listeners, links on where to find Jose, Latino Outdoors, The Outdoorist Oath, and and some of the other things we talked about will all be available on the show notes. Jose, this was a gift. Thank you so much for your time. Really grateful and good luck, everyone, and enjoy your relationship with, with each other in the land. And that is it for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Links on where to find Jose and everything we talked about are available on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. I really can't thank each of you enough for your support this season. Make sure to follow us on our social channels to keep up with what we're doing during the break. And don't forget to smash the like button. I hope you'll join us again for another season of BIPOC Outside.